dying is not a medical event. It is a social, communal, and if you want it to be a spiritual event. Disease causes pain. Dying is not painful. And we associate pain with the medical and we need to address it. But it's the disease effect on the body that creates the pain, not the natural dying process itself. This is the When You Die podcast. If it has to do with death and dying, we're talking about it. I'm Johanna Lund, your host today. I'm delighted to welcome Barbara Carnes back to the show. Barbara is a dedicated end-of-life educator, training nurses and volunteers, authoring resource materials, booklets, movies, and her fabulous blog. As a hospice pioneer and educator, her work has been recognized with many awards, including the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization's Hospice Innovator Award. Barbara was instrumental in creating the certification curriculum for the National End-of-Life Doula Association. You can find Barbara on her website at www.bkbooks.com and right here. Barbara Carnes, thank you for coming back and chatting with me again on the When You Die podcast. It is such a pleasure to see you. It's always good to be here. I'm glad that we had the opportunity to continue our talks. Yes, absolutely. I have to say, I would like to just sort of start off by a quote that you, in A Time to Live, which is wonderful, all your pamphlets are amazing. And and I've read and reread so many of them, and I always get something new or different out of them every time. And I can't tell you how many people I've passed around booklets to, and they're like, oh, this is the most amazing thing. Because in so many ways, they're not just pamphlets for dying. They really are pamphlets for living. And in a time to live, living with life-threatening illness, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. Dying is very sad, but it doesn't have to be bad. And I love that. I know that your work, like the When You Die Project's work, is to reduce fear through knowledge. What an amazing statement to say, death doesn't have to be bad. Well, everybody dies. We are born, we experience, and we die. It's the name of the game. And so we live under the illusion that we're going to live forever, and so is everyone close to me. And so we're just shocked when someone close to us or we get a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, acting like this isn't supposed to happen. It's going to happen to all of us. And if we can come to terms that life itself is a gift of time. And I think that is the most important thing for us to then recognize that, live each day to the fullest, do and say what we want to say today. Because there's only two ways to die. It's gradual or fast. 
And fast death doesn't give us the opportunity to, let's say, have all our ducks in a row. Gradual death does. Mm -hmm. And I see it as a gift. And that's a gift of making us recognize that time and the moment is what's important and what we have. Right. I know I can speak for myself that certainly big swaths of my life, I think I was on autopilot. And I think that the gift of death awareness is that you have to make a choice about being alive or virtually dead. (laughs) And that choice to actually be alive and to live in the moment, listen to the birds, get away from some of the screens, choose to have that conversation that you've been meaning to have, but is uncomfortable. All of those things takes a certain amount of bravery, I think. Oh, I I think it does. One of my nightly rituals is after I turn out my light, I say to myself two things. What was good about today? Because we tend to focus on the negative and I want to go to sleep on a good note. So what was good about today? And what did I trade a day of my life for? And that's almost a quick run through of the day. But what did I trade this day for? Because I'll never get it back. Mm. You don't know what tomorrow brings. So that's kind of my nightly ritual. That's wonderful. I'm going to have to start trying that now. What did I trade my day for? It's a really good way to put it. I want to talk to you a little bit about your early years in hospice, particularly with the AIDS epidemic. And I think that now we're still in this COVID epidemic and AIDS was a hidden epidemic, but it also was the big incubator for the hospice movement. So I was just wondering if you could share some of your experiences there and what did we learn from the AIDS epidemic? Well, I don't know what the public learned, but I know that healthcare professionals learned a lot. And I can remember going into my first person patient that had AIDS. It was a young woman. Her husband had died a year before, and it was listed as, we don't know why he died. And in hindsight, he was a drug user, and that's how he contacted AIDS. She had a two-year-old, and she developed AIDS and came home to die with her Mm two-year-old. And we knew nothing except that it was contagious. That was about all that we knew. And I said to the family, I don't know much about what's going on, except that it's very contagious. So I will make mistakes. I guarantee it. But my mistakes will be error on the side of caution. 
And so we put the little two-year-old in grandma's shirt backwards and buttoned it down the back and put socks on his hands and let him crawl on the bed and be with mom. Because I tried to weigh those two things. So fast forward, mom dies. And two years later, grandma calls me who's raising the little guy. He's now four. And where before he was thought to be failure to thrive, now Mm -hmm. they realize that he has been born with the virus. And grandma said, it's time. And so we brought him on to hospice and supported grandma during the time that he died. The point I want to make is from the time that I worked with mom and two years later worked with the little guy, we had learned so much about HIV and about AIDS. And so we didn't do the same isolation over precautions. We did good hand washing. We were careful with bodily fluids, but it was totally different because we had learned so much. Just think of that when COVID started versus now and the changes in what we've learned. And I think two years from now, we will have learned even more. Now we may look back right now or two years from now and say, oh boy, did we mishandle this? Yeah, we may have erred on the side of caution. That's how we should look at the history of dealing with any event in our life. Do you think that what hospice was deemed to be then and now has changed? Oh, yes. And that hurts me to say that. End of life work, in my mind, the goal, everything we do works up to the moment of death. Hopefully we have months to work with the patient and the family and educate, support, guide, neutralize fear, all of that in the months before death. But the moment of death is the focal point of our work. When I was a primary care nurse, our goal was to be with the family at the moment of death, to guide and support them. It was like we were the conductors and we're invisibly creating music and neutralizing fear and getting this moment, a sacred experience for the family. And that's the goal. And then following that moment, 
then we support and guide the family through the calling the funeral home and being there when the body is taken away and guide and support them and then bereavement follow-up. That to me is what end of life work is about. The moment of death, everything comes up to that point. Today, because of Medicare, because of regulations, because of hospice has become more of a business than altruistic service, because of that, at least in the U.S., most families are alone when their loved one dies at home. That moment of death, that which in my mind is the moment, they're alone. And I have a real hard time with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are all hospices the same? They all provide the same service because it's regulated what they have to provide. How they provide it is another thing. Right. And there are some amazing hospices. There are hospices that have created No One Dies Alone programs. There are a few hospices that are using end-of-life doulas in their program so that someone is there to guide and support the family. But those are few and far between. Right. And would you say that those tend to be more not-for-profit hospices or that doesn't seem to be in the equation? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But lots of good questions, I think, that people could imagine asking as they're looking for hospice care. Absolutely. You don't just run your finger down the phone book and pick one. And the fact that there are many, many hospices out there, the rural areas is more of a problem, but in the cities, you're going to have a selection of hospices. So what do you do? You call each one on the phone and ask your list of questions. I wrote a blog. So if you go to my website and put in hospice visits, I wrote a blog on questions to ask when you're searching for a hospice. If we go to the store, go to Macy's and buy a dress, we don't buy a dress or a piece of clothing without most of us without trying it on. And yet we will accept public services without even doing research to see what kind of agency we're dealing with. So ask your questions. My main question that I think is one of the most important is, does the hospice have primary care nursing, primary care social work, primary care chaplain? So many agencies send a different nurse or a different social worker on every visit. 
How can you develop a trust if you have a new person every time? And part of end of life work is developing a trust with your family and the patient. And that takes time. It takes time for us to feel comfortable with a person. And one 45 minutes or hours, and sometimes it's less, visit does not give you the opportunity to get to know someone. So that to me is the first question. Do I get the same nurse every, and the same home health aid mm-hmm. every visit? I think that's vital. Continuity. Absolutely. In such a confusing, can be confusing time that something has to give you some regularity, some order to that period. Yes. And in that order, one nurse and one social worker and one home health aide can build upon each of their visits and the knowledge they're learning Mm. about the patient, about the family dynamics. Mm. You go in for 45 minutes and you never see the person again. Even if you report at team meeting, it's not the same. It's not the same as watching the dynamics of this family unit. Right. Well, I think that the new booklet that you've written by your side, a guide for caring for the dying at home would be a really good companion to whatever kind of care you were able to have. My husband was sick. Well, now, but he was sick and I was his caregiver. The age we are, You never know. So I was concerned about what's going to happen. I was on the other side of the healthcare arena, being a caregiver. Holy smoke, that's hard work. And there are a lot of people out there that don't have any medical knowledge at all, at least I had that, that are all by themselves and they're caring for someone they care about or maybe they don't care about them. Maybe they just feel responsible for them or this is my duty. And they're alone and taking care of someone at end of life or as end of life approaches is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. But most people don't know that. And so we try to take care of people in a manner for them to get better. Really is different than someone who is approaching end of life. And that can be just old age. Old age, we begin dying if we have no disease at all. Our body is programmed to die. And so there are a lot of 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds who are taking care of an aging parent. 
and they don't know what to do. And so I think it was my being the caregiver on that side of the coin that I thought I need to give guidance to people who are in this position of caring for someone, not knowing what the end result is going to be. So I wrote by your side, including a daily sheet of checking how much they're eating, are they peeing, pooping, are they getting out of bed, questions that a caregiver needs to assess every day. And what I learned being that caregiver is that the first thing that I lost was my memory. Did he pee today? Did he poop today? Oh, geez. Or maybe that was yesterday. You've got to write everything down because we're so overwhelmed. And we as caregivers are carrying the fear of, am I going to do a good job? What do I do if I don't know what to do? Is he going to die tomorrow? Am I going to walk in and find him dead? All of that creates an enormous amount of fear for the caregiver. And I've addressed that as well. Yeah, that's so, so helpful. I know for myself, my husband had a heart condition that became really a problem during COVID. And because of COVID, his surgery was put off. So he was kind of in this nether world because they really give him beta blockers and there was that. And then once he did have the procedure, then he was, things were opening up and then he was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer, which I think has happened a lot during this pandemic is that a lot of cancers haven't been diagnosed because these procedures haven't been happening. So really had this double whammy kind of thing. And it really was overwhelming. He's fine. He's made it through the storm, still doing cancer treatments, but we know he's in good shape. But yes, exhausting. And it's so hard when people can't, well, this is a COVID thing, especially can't come in to give you some respite. Mm -hmm. So you're really there. It's a kind of a bit of a pressure cooker and the self-care aspect became really important. It's vital. I have a whole long chapter. Well, long, the whole book is only what, 80 pages. So long is relative, I guess. I have a chapter on self-care because when we get in the caregiver mold, we tend to put our own needs last. And what I stress is that we as caregivers have to put our oxygen mask on first, or we won't be able to continue the work. And so there's a chapter on how to take care of yourself and just some real commonplace, regular ideas and suggestions um, but I stress how vital it is that you take care of yourself. And that generally goes against your personality because you've got yourself in this caregiver role. And so you're going to think about who you're caring for 
first. True enough. It does help if you have a dog who has to go out. <laughs> another person, another being that needs help, but at least that one gets you out into some fresh air and nature and yeah. I don't know where I'd be without my little companion on four legs. <laughs> uh, for people who have got a life-threatening diagnosis or who are in their dying journey, how can we help people navigate that line between healing and curing? I think the key thing is to have a relationship with your primary care physician, a relationship that you get to know this person, him or her, and how their thinking is. What we have to remember, and most people don't think about this, but I'm going to throw it out there. And that is that the medical model that teaches everyone who works in the medical profession is that death is a failure. And so the medical model is to do everything they can to keep a body alive. Now, notice the use of the word body. Because you can keep the body breathing, you can keep it peeing, you can do a lot, but you can't keep it mentally thinking actively, you can't really keep the body living, and living is being able to interact to appreciate the world around you. And so when the physician says, I'm going to have trouble fixing you, and I hope the physician is courageous enough to be able to say that, then you as the patient and an advocate do not go to a doctor alone bring someone with you so that you have four ears instead of two and two minds remembering. So you and your advocate go and you ask questions. If I have treatment, what kind of life am I going to have? What do you think really this treatment is going to do? Most of us think we have treatment and we're going to be cured, right? That it's going to be gone, and I will return to my normal, usual life. Where with a lot of disease, you will not return to your normal life, your life will be changed forever. So, the question is, how much will it be changed? And you've got to ask and hope that your physician answers you realistically and honestly. And 
the question of how sick am I going to be with treatment? How am I going to feel after the treatment? What is my life going to be like after the treatment? Those are questions we have to ask, and they're terrifying questions, and we don't want to ask them. And don't hesitate to say to your physician, I don't understand what you're saying to me. I don't understand the words that you're saying. And please be clear. My mother was on hospice and came to live with me. And and my hospice medical director, because she came from out of town, he was going to be her primary care physician. So he's doing a physical. She's sitting on the bench and he's talking to her about her disease. And she's nodding her head, just like you are nodding her head up and down. And yes, which implies you understand. Finally, I said, David, excuse me, speak English. I don't understand what you're saying, let alone what my mother understands. And so many physicians find security and comfort in medical ease. Mm-hmm. Most of us are so vulnerable that we just sit there and shake our heads and don't understand a word that's being said. So that's really, really important. Absolutely. The yeah, having an advocate with you. And and I know with my husband, again, because of this time that we're in with COVID, I wasn't allowed to go into one mm-hmm. of his consultations. And so I had him bring my phone. So I was on FaceTime and I could then ask questions and hear what was going on. So not as great as being in the room. Thank heavens I did that because of course he's not hearing everything. He's scared. This is his body. He's facing his mortality. Are we ever really prepared to die? We're not. I don't think we are prepared to die. I get letters all the time and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I got a letter recently from a woman who told me that she's thought a lot about dying and she's not afraid to die and that she's going to be with Jesus and it's going to be wonderful. And what I have seen over my years of working with people is that no matter what our belief system is in afterlife, Mm -hmm. as we approach dying, we're going to be frightened to some degree, no matter what our belief system tells us, because really it's an unknown. We can believe it, but we don't have proof. Anytime we're faced with an unknown situation, we're going to be scared. And then add to the unknown aspect of afterlife, we're going to be frightened about how we are going to leave our body. Mm -hmm. Don't die like they do in the movies. And so we're going to be scared about that experience. All of us are. 
to some degree. That makes sense. (laughs) Well, of course it does. No matter how much I have in my much shorter period of time, starting the When You Die project, we're, we're just coming into nine years of this project. And of course, my own life experiences and so forth with people who have passed away. I'm not a professional in that sense. But when I think about death, I think when I really sort of put myself into that situation, I think the hardest thing for me personally might be that, well, A, I really like being alive, (laughs) but B, I have such a huge reference point to this body. I'm very attached to smelling roses this time of year and to seeing the birds in the bird bath and to walking through the woods with my dog and watching her play and all of these sensory things, nice food, all, all of that. I'm very attached to that. And I think that it's very difficult, no matter what I believe about where I'm going to go or how that's going to work out. It's very hard for me to imagine leaving this. I know, because this is how we perceive everything. This is our main point. This is who we are. And I don't think we can comprehend not being who we believe we are. And death gives us those thoughts, appropriately so, to explore that. But that's scary. That's scary for all of us. So this leads me to another big question, I think. What do you think the future of death and dying looks like? Do you think it's just the same as now or are things changing? I'm interested in the end of life doula movement, the end of life worker movement in the 70s when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came forward and said Americans aren't treating their dying well. And Dame Cicely Saunders in England created the hospice philosophy that brought dying in the medical model was then and still is viewed as a failure. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and Dame Cicely Saunders were outside of the medical model. And they were saying The medical model is not meeting end-of-life needs. And then hospice was developed and created, and we figured out how to provide care. We figured out how people die because Mm -hmm. we didn't really know how people actually, how the body dies. We learned that. Over the years, the span from the 70s to now, hospice and that philosophy, which met with great approval and from the government and from business and people, we, when I started, they couldn't even say the word hospice, it's hospic, you know, but now everybody knows what hospice is. And it's been absorbed into the medical model. End of life workers 
are outside of the medical model. They're where hospice was. There's where I was in the 70s. Today, they're saying, you know, the medical model, including hospice, is not meeting the needs of the dying as we perceive it. And so they're my hope for the future. And I don't know how it's going to play out. I've been in their shoes. And I realize without me even knowing it, I and other workers like me brought about change for the future, I think the same thing will unfold. And I don't know what that will look like, but I see dedicated, sincere people outside of the medical model saying we want it to be different. Right. And there is my hope. That there could be really the idea that there's two teams, that when you're no longer going to be cured, a whole nother team comes in and that that's in, there's a partnership or a handoff. Mm-hmm. Which is what hospice was supposed to be. Right. That was what it was supposed to be. But along the way, it's become more medicalized, more regimented, mm-hmm. more business oriented. And that will be the challenge of those that are outside now looking in is how can they avoid those same problems? Yeah. Yeah. I know you've said this before that really dying is a spiritual event. I think I might be paraphrasing a little here, but that really the family and for the person who's dying, that this is a sacred time. Dying is not a medical event. It is a social, communal, and if you want it to be, a spiritual event. Disease causes pain. Dying is not painful. And we associate pain with the medical, and we need to address it. But it's the disease effect on the body that creates the pain, not the natural dying process itself. The body knows how to shut down. The body can also release endorphins that do help with pain. It's not to say that you don't want to have palliative intervention. That's something that the body knows how to do. And I think that there are things that happen in the mind as well, that it can be a great kindness to help people let go. And so that could be things like end of life deathbed dreams or the relative who comes and sits at the edge of the the bed, but is no one else can see, but the person who's dying is getting a real benefit from having these types of visitations. And they're so common, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. In saying that dying is not a medical event, what I believe is that you don't need a doctor or a nurse or anyone from the medical establishment with you when a person is dying. What you want 
is someone who understands the normal, natural way that the body dies from disease or old age. You want someone who understands the dynamics of dying to guide and support you and your family. You don't have to have any medical training for that. What you need is to have training so you understand end of life. And that's what you're finding in the end of life workers who are not from the medical establishment where you need medical, an end of life worker, a hospice can work together providing the medical for one and all the psychosocial support and time. Time is a vital commodity that hospice has lost and that end-of-life workers can provide that time to be that conductor with the family and patient. I'm very happy about that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I think that this is probably a good place for us to stop. I know you and I, there's so many things we can keep exploring. I'm very optimistic, too, about the end-of-life doulas and other caregivers. And we have met and talked with a number of them. And it's good to know although things keep changing, that there's also opportunity to make it better. Right. And we'll just have to do this again. We'll have to pick up where we left off and do it again. Okay. It's a deal. Barbara Carnes, thank you so much for being here. And once again, I want our listeners to know that you can be reached at bkbooks.com. And do explore that website. There's so much there, so much there. So thank you for all that you do. Oh, thank you. Bye. Bye. This conversation is brought to you by the When You Die Project. From existential afterlife questions to palliative care and the nuts and bolts of green burial, if it has to do with death, we're talking about it. When you die,